turn in your Bibles, if you would, this morning to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter, we looked at this briefly in Sunday school hour, chapter 1, and talked about how this is the swan song of the Apostle Peter. This is the letter that he writes knowing that he is shortly about to die, as he tells us in verse chapter 1 and verse 14. And he writes this brief letter with a specific purpose and intent because he's concerned about the dangers of apostasy. He's concerned about the dangers of people walking away from the hope of the gospel, from them departing from the faith. He's seen it. He's seen the influence of false teachers scattering the flock. Chapter 2 is really in its entirety a warning for them to be aware of the influence of false teachers, how to identify them, how to know who they are, what they're going to say. He says in chapter 2 and verse 10, chiefly, primarily, here's how you identify them. They walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness, and they despise government. They despise being ruled. They despised having anyone or anything tell them what they need to do. That's the two character traits that chiefly reveal them as they walk after the flesh. They're carnal. And then he goes on throughout the chapter to explain it. And so he gives these warnings and just a brief summary of the book of Second Peter. In chapter 1, he, he wants them to come to a full assurance to be grounded on the inspired Word of God, which is usually what we quote from in 2 Peter at the end of chapter 1. Secondly, he wanted them to have an awareness of false teachers in chapter 2. Come to a full assurance, have an awareness of the false teachers, and then when he gets to chapter 3, he wants them to have an anticipation. An anticipation of Christ's return. That he wants to remind them of that, and he starts out in the first verse of stirring up their mind by way of remembrance reminding them, encouraging them to have an anticipation that Christ is returning to the earth. And how that needs to be embedded and baked into our understanding of reality and life and everything that is, that when that event happens, things are going to change. And that is the hope of the Christian. That is the hope that we cling to, that we have to be reminded of And if we have that hope, we are not going to be tempted to walk away from it, to to depart from it and say, it's hopeless, I give up on it, I thought, but now I'm just going to live for this life only. And so he uses that to encourage them and remind them. So as we come to this chapter this week, and then my intention next week is to preach further into chapter 3, But I want to look at this morning the first nine verses of of 2 Peter chapter 3. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your minds, your pure minds, by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, Knowing this first, 
that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. There it is again. And saying, where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the promise that You have given. A God who cannot lie, promised, and the strong consolation that we have to trust your promise. God, I pray that you would encourage your people this morning from your word of your great promise of what you're going to do and that your purpose will be accomplished. Help us. Encourage our hearts, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at these promises and the danger of apostasy, Peter's concerned as he goes off the scene of their eternal soul. And so he gives them these instructions and and tries to stir up their hope because he's seen Judas, one of the inner circle apostles of Christ, depart. Leave the faith entirely. He's experienced it. I've been listening on Audible to a biography of George Washington. And as he's going through the Revolutionary War, leading the troops, a long war, nine years of war, for the first six years, he never left his troops. Because he knew if he left, he likely would come back and they would all be gone. He knew that his presence was sustaining them, encouraging them, and helping them as they wintered, as they labored, as it drew on. And he knew that if if once that door was open and they started returning, that they would all leave and it would be over. And so he committed to to stay with them and to encourage them and to to be with them. And and then you get that sense from Peter that he, he feels that weight that when I leave, will it continue? And obviously, Christ has proven faithful throughout all ages to be with His people. Even thousands of years later, He's still with us according to His promise in the Great Commission, and I will be with you always, even to the end of the world. It's a great promise. And so God has given us great promises. And I want to preach this morning, God has promised that Christ will return to this earth. It is a promise 
of God. Let me give you four things from this text. Number one, the dependence on God's promise. He's encouraging them and he wants them to be mindful and to remember and to depend upon and to live according to the promise of God. If there is no return of Christ, there is no resurrection from the dead. Those are connected. If Christ does not return because the resurrection happens when He returns. And if He doesn't return, remember 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul said, if there be no resurrection of the dead, we are of all men most miserable. Eat, drink, and be merry because we're going to die and that's it. But we have the promise of God. And so I want to just look at several scriptures. So get your fingers nimble. Let's hear some pages turning. Go to John 14 and verse 3. Hold your finger here. John 14. These are going to be familiar, but I want to encourage your heart this morning from the promises of God that He promises to return. John 14 and verse 3. Jesus told them in verse 2, in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Do you have that framework in your understanding of reality? That Christ is returning and you're going to live with Him? Acts 1 and verse 11, when Christ ascended up into heaven and left the earth, the apostles were standing there. They thought He was going to restore the kingdom then. And they're dumbfounded, staring up into heaven. And in verse 11, the angel comes and says, Why are you standing there looking up into heaven? This same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as you have seen Him go into heaven. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 19, an entire letter written very much upon the uh, promise of the resurrection, but in 1 Thessalonians 2 and verse 19, the apostle says this, What is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 10. The Thessalonian church is under persecution. And he holds out this hope and says, When He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. The Bible says in Hebrews, He that shall come will come and will not tarry. Titus 2 and verse 13. You probably memorized this as a child if you are raised in a Christian home. And Titus chapter 2 and verse 13 says, The grace of God that brings salvation teaches us to be looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
And then in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13, he says, Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. And then the very end of your Bible, in Revelation chapter 22 and verse 20, says this, He which testifieth these things saith, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. That is the hope that we as believers have. We believe that we know how the end of this life and this world is going to end with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as God's people, we need to be reminded of Christ's return. Our minds stirred up and not sedentary. And so I ask you this morning, how often, recently, maybe since the first of the year, has the thought of Christ's return served to bolster and strengthen your faith and to spur you to godliness and steadfastness? How often have you reflected and thought about Christ is returning to this earth? He is going to set the record straight. He is going to take care of all things. That's what Peter wanted to renew in them. That's my desire in preaching this is to renew in you the reminder of our hope. We do not want to live our lives in such a way that the return of Christ is insignificant. We desire to live lives that only makes sense if we believe that Christ is returning to judge the earth. That our life, that you couldn't explain this life if you didn't have that reality impacting it. Jonathan Edwards, famous theologian, had a list of resolutions that he resolved to do. In his resolution 19, he said, I am resolved. Never to do anything. Right? What does this look like to be living in light of that return? He said, I'm resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would be an hour before I should hear the last trump. If I don't want to do it an hour before the last trump, I don't want to do it now. And so it's an anticipation. It's an expectation based on the absolute promise of God, this is going to happen. Christ's return is found, I read somewhere, Leon Morris, in every New Testament book, except for Galatians and Philemon and 2nd and 3rd John, These the short little letters. Every book, it's throughout, that this is part of the believer's hope. And the God who cannot lie promised before the world began, Titus 1-2. God has given His promise in His Word. You can base your life on that promise. You can take it, we use the phrase, take it to the bank. It's certain. It is more certain that Christ is going to return than that you or I are going to wake up in the morning. We assume, well, I'm expecting to wake up in the morning. Well, it is more certain 
that the, then the sun is going to rise in the morning. We got up this morning and somebody else, Pastor Greg, said, well, look at there, the sun came up. It is more certain that Christ is going to return than that sun's going to come up tomorrow based upon the promise of God. He said in Matthew 24, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not. They will certainly be fulfilled. Why was Peter so concerned about this and insistent that they be mindful of these words? Because he knew that false teachers were there, were coming, and would mock that. Right? One of the most effective strategies in persuading someone is mockery. Because who of us want to be openly mocked and ridiculed? And so the fear of man causes us to avoid things because we don't want to be mocked about it. And so the strategy of the mockers and the scoffers was, was an effective strategy to get them to cower, to get them to be afraid. And so Peter wanted them to understand and expect, he says in verse 3, knowing this first, a priority, that there are going to come, number two, the derision, the mocking of God's promise. There will come scoffers saying, where is the promise of His coming? That is not, would you agree with me that in the public discourse, that that's not a prominent theme that Christ is coming? I actually found myself on the way to church this morning. I was, I, I sang, and Matthew's like, "Are you going to keep doing that?" Or, <laughs> but it was the song that we played last Sunday. Got in my head, Christ is coming. Christ is coming. Christ is coming. I just kept singing the chorus. I kind of get on a loop, you know. Christ is coming. And yet, there's the derision, a scoffing, and it will come. Peter likely had already experienced it. We see in chapter 1, verse 16, where they were, he says, I haven't given you cunningly devised fables and stories when I made known to you the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was not a story. So the implication is there, they were probably saying to Peter, yeah, your stories, your, your, your fables, yeah, you, you've got this great story about how he's going to return. And yet we believe it with certainty. The Scriptures tell us that prior to Christ's return, that there will be apostasy and mocking. In Luke 18, Jesus says, When I return, shall I find faith on the earth? 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and verses 1-3 through 3 tell us, let me just read those. If I try to quote them, I'll get all fumbled up. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto Him, that you be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled. Look, there's a lot going on in our society today. Would you agree with me? There is a lot of things going on, and it is very easy to get all hot and bothered and disturbed and rattled. It's unnerving because you see what's going on and you think this is insanity. Don't be shaken in mind. Don't be troubled. 
neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter as from us. The implication is that somebody wrote a letter claiming to be from the Apostle Paul saying, you missed it, it already happened. He says, is that the day of Christ is at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, an apostasy, an apostasia. Secondly, under this, you see their motive. Why is it that they scoff? Notice in verse 3, walking after their own lusts, because they don't want him to return. Because they want to live with no judgment. And so, if we will it to happen, we can make change reality and maybe it won't happen. And so we mock it. And we want to live the way we want to live and we do not want anyone telling us we can't do whatever we want. We can shape our own reality. Right? We see this. We live this. We're aware of this. One man said this, their denial of Christ's parousia. That's the word for his coming. This denial supports their libertinism. The connection is obvious. Who could let themselves go into an immoral excess if he believed that the Lord is ready to return to judgment at any time? Right? It would shape your behavior. So if we're going to embolden ourselves to live ungodly and in rebellion, we want to get rid of that concept that he could even come back and judge us. So they give an argument. Notice their argument in verse 4. Where is the promise of his coming? Here's their argument. Here's what I teach my children as we read the scriptures together. When you see that word, F-O-R, look for it. Here's an argument. Here's his explanation. They say... Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. What is it saying? It's been dynamic. It's been, excuse me, static. Every day's the same. Same, 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 same. And what you're saying is, is it's going to change. Something's going to cataclysmically change reality. Forever. Okay? So their argument is well, history shows and teaches us that it's static. It didn't come yesterday, today's the same. Now let me ask you is that true? Their argument that every day is the same? You ever heard the saying that past performance is no indicator of future success? I had a professor, I went to Central Michigan University. And I had a professor in finance that he would uh, frequently remind us of this statement when you're investing in stocks, that past performance does not determine future success. The SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, that regulates the trading of stocks and bonds and securities, requires that if you advertise as an investment firm on TV. Notice this when you're watching TV and an advertisement comes on for Merrill Lynch or Doug Edward Jones or whatever, and they say, hey, our return has been 38%. The SEC requires them verbally to say past performance is no determiner of future success. Or some words very similar to that. 
requires them. Because they don't want you to think, just because we got that last year, that you can expect that next year. And so he was very adamant about this, as, a, as you know, professors can be, that that past is not necessarily determinative of what will happen in the future. The scriptures give us a response to their arguments. Peter, remember in 1 Peter, told us, Be prepared to give an answer of every man that asketh you, a reason of the hope that lies within you. They are questioning the promise of God and the word of God. And Peter says, let me just stir up your mind by way of remembrance. Thirdly, the defense of God's promise. Boy, if there's anything that you can be safe in, it is defending God's promise. That's a good ground to be standing on. Notice in verse 5. For... This, they, he's responding to their, their accusation of their scoffing. They willingly are ignorant of this. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old. Right? What brought the universe into existence? It was the word of God. And the earth standing out of the water and in the water. Right? The firmament was separated. The land and the sea was separated by the word of God. Whereby the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. What's that a reference to? The flood. Have all things continued statically the same from the beginning of the creation? How far do you get into your Bible before there's a cataclysmic change where God kills man, woman, child, and every animal except for eight people who get on a boat? How many chapters in? I mean, you don't have to be a, a voracious reader to realize that, that their accusation is not true. Six chapters. Six chapters into Genesis. From the beginning of the creation, God wiped it out entirely. All things have not continued as they were from the beginning of the creation. In fact, it's a very dynamic, changing environment in life and world that we live in. And so the creation by the word of God started. It's interesting that they don't extrapolate back billions of years as they would today, right? They would, these scoffers accept the creation. But we say, well, we've got to extrapolate back however many, 3.2, or I can't remember the number, back billions of years to when it happened. Well, was that static moving forward? No, obviously there was, even in their own logic and understanding, there was great change. But the, the flood serves as a, a great example because it demonstrates, do you remember that when the flood happened, what was the, the normal meteorologist's job? Had it ever rained before? Never. Never. And God said, I'm going to bring a flood. I'm going to open up the heavens. And, they, and what was their response? Well, that's, it's never done that before. That can't happen. You understand the strength of Peter's argument here? Really. And so notice what he says in verse 7. 
that same word that created the universe. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, what's holding the whole thing together today, are being kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. It is the same word that's going to declare that, that has promised how it's going to end. I had a conversation with my children this week about nuclear weapons. Sometimes things go dark as we sit and talk as a family. But the Ukraine uprising and all that's going on, and then they're thinking and they're learning about it in school, and they're talking about Russia, and does Russia have nuclear weapons, and what's a nuclear weapon like, and going through all of that, you know, good times to grow up in, right? And I gave them the assurance, this world's not going to end in a nuclear war. Because God said it's not. He's going to end it. Nobody's going to circumvent or short circuit his plan. Nobody's going to preemptively bring it to an end before he does. He has said, I, I will return to this earth. I will bring it. And we know how it's going to end. It's not going to end with global warming. That's not going to be the end of civilization. It's not going to melt the ice caps and flood the whole world. He's already said that's not going to happen. I will never flood the world again. And we'll get into this next week in verses 10 and following. I'm going to melt it. We already know how he's going to do it. This is the assurance and the hope and the expectation that you can have as a believer who embraces God's word. We know what the end is. You probably heard the cliche, we've read the end of the book, and he wins. And you can base your life today on that reality. That is the essence of a genuine faith. How long did Noah preach that it was going to rain? 120 years. And they thought this tool is an idiot. Who does he think he is? Talking about this flood. I mean, you get the picture. He didn't build the boat on the Mediterranean Sea. Right? He built the boat in the middle of dry ground. And it's never rained before. And he said, God said it's going to rain and it's going to flood and I'm building a boat. And I got to believe Mrs. Noah had some bad days and I'm sure Mr. Noah had some bad days and thought, I don't want to build a boat today. I'm a little wore out on this. But God said. He based by faith in God's word, this is reality and this is more real than what I read in the news or anything I can see and observe with my own eyes. And the same word that created the earth, by the same word, what has determined to destroy the world by fire. The creator that made the world reserves the sole prerogative to destroy it. Do you see that in verse 7? By the same word. Let me give you some scriptures to reinforce that, because it's not just here that Peter just pulled this out of random. Go to Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, the last chapter of Isaiah. In Isaiah 66 and verse 15, this is what Peter quotes later in the chapter, which we'll, Lord willing, look at next week. For behold, 
the Lord will come. How? With fire. And with his chariot like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword will the Lord plead with all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. Turn over to Micah. Back a few chapters. Micah chapter 1. Isaiah, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. Micah chapter 1 and verse 3. For, behold, the Lord cometh. He cometh forth out of his place and will come down. And what is he going to do when he comes down? And will tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains shall be molten under him, melted under him. And the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire, as the waters that are poured down a steep place. He's going to melt it. Turn over to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament, the last chapter of the Old Testament, in chapter 4 and verse 1. Malachi says, For behold, the day cometh, are you, are you noticing the repetition there? There is a certainty. The day is coming. And what is that day going to look like? There's a consistent witness throughout the scriptures that shall burn as an oven. And all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly, shall be stubble. That's the... the small pieces of the chaff that very easily you can set on fire. And that day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall leave them neither root nor branch. Then in the New Testament in Matthew 24 and verse 37, the Bible says, but as the days of Noah were, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. What's it going to be like? What's it going to be like when Christ returns? Well, for as in the days that were before the flood, there's encouragement in this text if you, if you listen to it. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark. And knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. What is it saying? Is it predicting a Holocaust, World War III environment? It describes and depicts it as normal life going on. Eating and drinking. Marrying and giving in marriage. Until it happens. The Bible says in Thessalonians, for when they shall say peace and safety, then sudden destruction cometh upon them. Do you see the encouragement in that? As things will be continuing on, eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. And we'll look at this next week in verse 10, but it's going to come, and this is the consistent testimony of Scripture, 
like a thief when you're not expecting it. And then 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7. I want to give you these scriptures so that you realize that this isn't just some random thing we're extrapolating from Peter in his text. But in 2 Thessalonians 1 and verse 7, I told you the Thessalonian church was persecuted. And so Paul writes to them and says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. How? In flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. How is he going to come? In flaming fire. So Peter responds directly to their argument. He defends the word of God. He defends the promise of God. And now lastly, he gives us the delay of God's promise. He, he takes head on the reality of, if you maybe have been sitting here thinking, oh, that, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, he made all those promises. But my goodness, it's been a, it's been a while. Right? Because what happens when you, and I, you or I make a promise? Well, I kind of forgot about that. Right? That was a while ago. I said that. Yeah, I kind of remember it, but that's been a few years. My wife is very gifted at remembering every promise that I make and stirring up my pure mind by reminding me, you said, oh. And so the delay of God's promise. Look at verses 8 and 9. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing. Let me paraphrase. God's time is not our time. Right? We, we look in, through the prism and the lens of our generation. Right? Pastor Greg, he looks back through the lens of an ancient generation. Right? Previous generation. And why can't America be like it? Well, you know. And then I'm in that 40-something. And then you have a younger generation. And we look at it and that's reality. But God's time isn't our time. Be not ignorant of this one thing. That one day is with the Lord is a thousand years. And a thousand years is one day. He's quoting here from Psalm 90 and verse 4. A psalm of Moses, incidentally. Let me read you Psalm 90 and verse 4. For a thousand years in thy sight are but as yesterday when it is past, and as a watch in the night. Right? They would divide up the night in the night watchman who has to stay awake. And there'd be four watches, a three-hour shift. The first the watch, the second watch, the third watch, the fourth watch. And he says a thousand years to God is like one three-hour shift. I don't know about you, but you get a job and you don't like it. Man, the, watching the clock and that eight hours seems like a thousand years. In the book of James, he also tells us of this. In James 5 and verse 7, Be patient, brethren, under the coming of the Lord. 
Behold the husbandman, the farmer. He waits for the precious fruit of the earth and hath long patience for it until he receive the early and latter rain. Be you also patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. You need to be reminded of this, brethren. You need to be stirred up in your mind to remember Christ is coming. And there's a reason. And there's reasons that, there's reasons that He isn't delaying. He's not delaying what causes other men to delay. That's not why He's delaying. Right? I mentioned myself that I forget. Or if somebody shows up late, I'm one of those people who likes to be on time. And then I got married. I was pretty proud yesterday as we drove out here from Michigan. We left at about 5.30 in the morning. And when I give somebody an ETA... It is a matter of pride and principle that we will be there at that time. It is just, it's a little self-righteous, I acknowledge. But I just, i when I moved from Oregon to Michigan, I decided, hey, I got some space in the trailer. I could get on Craigslist and kind of ask anybody if they need anything delivered between here and Portland and make some money and pay for gas. And so I had three or four stops and had a boat and all manner of things. And uh, right at the last minute, the guy called and he's like, you're not going to make it. You, you said you're going to be here tomorrow at such and such a time. You'd have to drive straight through. And I'm thinking, oh, buddy, you don't you know it? 30 hours straight, we're doing this. And I said, you just be waiting in that parking lot and I will be there. I, see, I think it's spiritual. I think I'm imitating Christ. And so as we're getting close, I mean, I'm, I, I went to sleep in a rest area for about 15 minutes, woke up and thought I was dead. But get back on the road. And I called him up. I can't remember his name now. He's a Mexican guy, Raul or something. I said, are you in that parking lot, Raul? Because I'm early. <laughs> Come get your... I don't even remember what I got him. I got him up car topper or something I was carrying for him. The Lord doesn't, when he says he's going to be somewhere, take it to the bank. He's going to be there. It's not the lack of ability to fulfill the promise. I had a setback. I had some vehicle issues. And that's why he didn't think I could make it. Because I had some cushion and I burned through the cushion. Because I had to have some the vehicle replaced, and I had to, the mechanic wasn't getting it done. And I have a mechanic, and he was up till 2 o'clock in the morning working on my vehicle to make sure. I said, i got to leave by 7 a.m. And he said, I will not go to sleep until that's done. I said, now, see, God bless you. And so he called me at 2.30 in the morning. It's done. I said, I'm on my way. It's not a lack of I See, I can make a promise to my child and then I'd be hindered and not able to do it. I want to do it, but I don't have the money now because it's unexpected. God doesn't have the unexpected. When He says I'm going to do it, it's not because I forgot. It's not like other men count slackness. It's not because, well, I wanted to, but I just couldn't. God doesn't do that. He doesn't forget it's not because he lost interest in what's happening. Oh, that's right. The world's still going on. Life's still happening. 
I can get like that sometimes. My wife accuses me. The whole world could blow up and you wouldn't even know it. You're locked into... Again, I think it's a virtue. but Sometimes we change our mind. Well, yes, but in the circumstances then, when I made that promise, I didn't know that God doesn't change His mind. Because there's no circumstance that happens that He's like, oh, I didn't account for that. Beloved, the omniscience and immutability of God is such that God not only doesn't knows everything, He's always known everything. He can't learn anything. And He's promised. Do you understand the certainty that when God says this is how it's going to end, bank your life on it. This is how it's going to end. And he's long-suffering. Why is there a delay? Because God's long-suffering. You can read this verse two ways. I won't get into all that this morning. And I think there's some merits to both of them, and there's opinions, and I've heard them all, and I've actually adopted both positions, and I change sometimes because I read it, and I'm like, well, that is pretty persuasive. But the certain thing is, is that He's long-suffering. Now you understand, you read early in the Bible in Exodus 34 and verse 6. Let me read you that. This is Moses when God passes before him. Right? He's hewing the Ten Commandments. And the Bible says in Exodus 34, 6, and the Lord passed before him. Remember, he hides Moses. Moses wants to see his glory. And proclaim the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. He's long-suffering. I can be long-suffering until I can stand what I can stand, so I can't stand no more. Daffy Duck, if you're wondering that quotation. But think about this. With your long-suffering, I don't know really any of you people, but what if I just determined I'm going to push his buttons? I'm going to get him to go to the moon. And I just said, I'm going to follow you around and I'm going to figure out what irritates you to death. And I'm just going to push it. You ever meet people like that? Aren't they a blessing? But what if I just intentionally said, I'm going to go and I'm going to poke the bear every day. How long would you put up with me before you just said, you're going to go to the moon? <laughs> would it take three days? The Bible talks about not being long-suffering means bearing under provocation for a long time. I don't know about you. I don't bear provocation for a long time. Not easily provoked. Right? My blood starts to thicken and boil. What if I just walked up to you as you were leaving church and just shoved you and knocked the books out of your hand and I was a bully? How long would you put up with that before you decide, I've had about enough of you, buddy. And you see me coming and you said, I, I don't care what i got to do. One time I, I had a younger brother. I had two older brothers and a younger brother. And I may have been a little difficult to the younger brother. Okay, 
And one day I come into the bathroom. I was probably, I don't know, eight years old. And my younger brother popped out from behind the door with a broomstick and cracked me right over the back. So I told you I'd get you back. I had no idea what he was even talking about. But he was convinced that I'm, I've had about enough of this older brother. How long would it take before I've exhausted your patience? A day? Three days? Seven days? Thirty days? Ninety days? Every day I do that to you. What if I was so evil, I said, I had a group of people and I enlisted all of you. Fifty people, whatever it is. I'm a Baptist preacher, we round up. And I said, okay, we're going to single out him. When you see him, knock him over. Provoke him. And so we all determined that's what we're going to do. What's your name? What is it? Caleb. When you see Caleb, if he's got something in his hands, knock it out. Bump into him. Tripping. Key his car. I mean, you just provoke him. Get him angry. And we all just Band of brothers said, we're, we're going to pour it on. How long before Caleb loses his mind and he's had enough? How many days would he last? How many, Caleb? Not a day. <laughs> we're not getting to a day. What if it was all day, every day? That you and I made it our purpose in life. That we quit our jobs and all we did is follow him around and provoke him. And he had the ability to do something about it. Are you getting the picture where I'm going with this? Now what about if we did that and there was 7 billion of us for 6,000 years, doing nothing but every single day, everything that they do is inciting and provoking the wrath of God. And he's long-suffering. It's embarrassing how long-suffering he is. It's almost like he's trying to make a really, really clear point that in the day of judgment, nobody's going to say, Man, that was quick. Is we're going to go like Moses as they pass by that with long suffering and merciful. Long suffering and merciful. So when this text says, you know, the, the Lord's long suffering, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing that the entire world, and this is why Psalm 5 says, God is angry with the wicked. Every day, he's provoked by billions of people all day, every day, without apology. What's going to happen when he says, and that's enough? Nobody's going to say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't seem right. Why is he, the Bible says, uh, when the cup of his wrath is full, what is going to happen when his wrath is kindled just a little? 
This is why John the Baptist and others say, who has warned you to flee and run from the wrath to come? And you can flee, not from God, but to Him. To a merciful God that poured out His wrath for your sin on His Son. Offering you conditions of peace to be reconciled to Him based on Him taking the punishment you deserve pouring it on His Son, offering you conditions of peace, and you say, no thank you. I'm not accepting your conditions of peace. But God is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Is that you? Have you not ran from God and His wrath, but to Him? This is why the Scriptures say, Look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. Come without money and without price. You're not bringing anything. You're just coming and falling down before God and saying, Forgive me for my sin. I am trusting that you poured out the wrath for my sin on your son and you gave his obedience and counted it to me by faith. If you are outside of Christ today, you are abiding under the wrath of an angry God who has been provoked. And when his wrath is poured out, there will be no escape. Do you remember when the flood happened after being warned for 120 years? The Bible says, and the door was shut. And there's no more getting in. Jesus said, gave parables to explain, and when the door is shut, they're going to stand without, saying, oh man, open to us. We've had a change of heart and a change of plans. We see it now. And you knock without like they did on the ark. Let, let us in. And they're not opening it. And he says, woe to you when you see Isaac and Jacob and Abraham in the kingdom and you're shut out. And I give you that same warning. If you are outside of Christ, who has warned you to flee now, from the wrath to come. Because we're going to see in the next verse next week, because the day of the Lord will come. I plead with you to come to Christ, turn from sin, and look and cling to Christ as your only hope of salvation. Obey the gospel. And for those of you who are in Christ, I leave you with this inspired question from 
verse 11 and 12. As we look for the hasting and coming unto the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, verse 11, seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, here's the question. What manner of persons ought you to be in all holy conversation and godliness? If you believe that, how should that shape and affect your present living? Do you believe it? Let's pray.